feel like with a weather like this, we should preach on one of the apocalyptic passages uh, from Revelation, perhaps. But we are locked into our series. We're looking at the seventh beatitude, and it's found in Matthew 5, verse 9. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you can use the Black Pew Bible. It's on page 809, Matthew 5, verse 9. And it reads, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, according to Jesus, one of the signs of God's favor in our lives, in other words, the way we know that we are blessed, is if we are pursuing peace with others. So the question is, how do you know God is blessing you? How do you know you have God's favor in your life? Well, you look at your life, and if you find peace, if you find yourself pursuing peace, making peace with others, Jesus says that's a good sign that God is blessing you. Now, of course, as we have talked throughout this series, we know that for most of us, that's not typically what we associate with God's blessings. We typically look to our material possessions to to personal accomplishments, and that is where we say we are blessed because we see these gifts in our lives. But according to Jesus, the signs of God's blessing, the, the signs that God has favor on our lives are purity of heart, poverty of spirit, spiritual emptiness, uh, ability to mourn over our sin and the sin of others, a uh, hunger and thirst for righteousness, meekness, or deferring to God's sovereignty in your life, showing mercy to others. Those are the signs that Jesus says tell us that God is blessing us, and peacefulness and the pursuit of peace is one of those. So today, we're looking at being peacemakers. My outline is pretty simple. I have three points. I'd like to look at the who of peacemaking. So who are the peacemakers? Number two, the what of peacemaking. What are we actually supposed to be doing? And number three, the why of peacemaking. What is our motivation? So the who, the what, and the why. And I am not just listing British rock bands in this outline. Who are the peacemakers? The peacemakers here are called sons of God. So in other words, our pursuit of peace marks us as God's children. If you know Scripture, you know that many times in Scripture, God is associated with peace. He is called the God of peace several times. Romans 15, Romans 16, Hebrews 13. Peace is part of God's nature. It's part of who He is. It's part of God's character. He is peaceful. He is peace-seeking. And so if we are related to God, if we are His sons, if we are His children, we share this predisposition toward peace. It's a family trait for believers to seek peace. Richard Baxter said, He who is not a son of peace is not a son of God. If you're not pursuing peace, we have to ask ourselves, am I really connected with God? Am I really related to Him? Because He is the God of peace. If you come to my house for breakfast... And let's say I like you, 
and I make waffles and pancakes and crepes, something like that. So you will see, sitting around the table, you will see that our children will go and get a little can of condensed sweetened milk. And you would say, why? You know, we don't do that here. We do that at our house. We would put it on waffles and pancakes and bread and all sorts of things. To be honest, I just eat it out of the can sometimes. I just get a spoon. <laughs> it just tastes like heaven to me. It's so good. So, what? <laughs> I don't want to get distracted on condensed sweet milk, but it is easy for me to do that. So why, why do my children eat that? Well, because I eat that. It's a family trait. It's something they picked up from me because they belong to my family. They do what I do, some of the things that I do. Some of them are good. Some of them are not so good. But as you know, we, we pick up our parents' traits and habits and, and preferences. And so the idea here in this text is that if we belong to God, if we're related to Him for part of His family, we're going to do things God does. We're going to be like Him, like our Father. We're going we're gonna to adapt to some of His preferences and His traits, and we would naturally seek peace because He seeks peace Himself. We all resemble our parents to a certain degree. Now, some of us resemble our pets, which is a little bit disturbing, but if you spend enough time with a pet, you'd, right, you've seen those pictures, you kind of start looking like them, and they start looking like you. If we spend time with God, if we're with Him, if we're around Him, we're part of His family, of course, we're going we're gonna to adapt to some of His traits. We're going to do what He does. We're going to become like Him. Let me, let me turn to John 8. This is where Jesus is, is explaining the same principle in a very, very stark terms. John 8, verse 42 and following. Now Jesus is responding to people who claim to have God as their Father. And yet, though they claim to be related to God, they reject Jesus, his son, and they reject his message. So listen to what Jesus says to them. He says, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. This is very clear, isn't it? Jesus says, if you belong to God, you would hear his word, you would accept his word, you would love Jesus, you would accept Jesus and his work and his message. But if you are not of God, all of that is going to seem foreign to you and unnatural. You will act out of your own character, which is not godly. Sometimes when my older girls go to a friend's house or go visit family for a few days, I, I remind them, I tell them, remember who you are and whose you are, which they just giggle when I say that because it sounds kind of funny. But I mean, remember who you are, remember your identity in Christ, and also remember whose you are, remember who you belong to. 
And part of it is I want, to, want them to remember they belong to our family and I expect them to act a certain way around other people as to, as to not bring shame to me and Jillian. But mostly I want them to remember they belong to God and they should act accordingly. Because if you are related to God, you would act a certain way. If you belong to God, you would think and feel a certain way. In the New City Catechism that we, we have used with our kids... Uh, the first question is, what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer is that we are not our own, but belong body and soul both in life and death to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a foundational principle of life, isn't it? When I go anywhere, when I consider my life, I should not think of it in my own terms. I should think, but it's not me. I'm not my own. I belong to God. He bought me with His Son's blood. He is changing me. I am now reflecting who He is. I belong to His family, which means I should not bring shame to His name, to His family. My identity is with Him, and that informs, and it should inform every Christian's behavior and thinking and planning and emotions. If we belong to God's family... That should be reflected in our lives. And if God is a God of peace, we should be people of peace. We should be peacemakers. If the connection with God is real, if we are in the same family, it will come out in our lives. Now, when I say belong to God's family, I mean having been brought into God's family through the work of the Holy Spirit. I am not assuming that everyone is part of God's family. Not everyone is. Most aren't. God brings certain people into his family, and he does that through a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. We are by nature sinners, separated from God. There's no familial relationship with God in our own sinful nature. There's separation. Sin has so affected every person, every part of creation, that there's not a natural connection. We are not accepted with God naturally. But God of peace, this God of peace that we worship, does something incredible. He sends His Spirit, God of God, the Lord of life. He sends Him, the Spirit of adoption, to reconcile with us and to make us part of His family. This transition from being in conflict with God to being at peace with God has several different dimensions and and. Basically, every time we preach, we want to point out one of those, at least. Because it's so important to understand how God works with us. So, of course, there's this change in status. We often talk about that. This change in status where, based on what Jesus has done in my place, I am now considered righteous before God. Righteous, meaning that as Jesus is perfect, as Jesus is obedient, and because I have identified with Him by faith, now I have connected with Him by faith, God the Father now accepts me into his family on the basis of his son's righteousness. Now that's a change in status. I am now accepted. I used to be rejected. Now I'm accepted. I used to be guilty. Now I'm proclaimed not guilty. But there's also a change in nature. I feel like that's something we don't talk as much about as we should. Now we touched on that last week a little bit, and that's a good doctrine to keep in mind. There's also a change in nature. When the Holy Spirit brings someone into God's family, it's not just a legal transaction. It is also a supernatural transformation of your nature, of your life. 
Now you are different. Scripture talks about a second birth. talks about being transferred from, from death to life, from darkness into light. It's a stark comparison. We used to be dead, now we're alive. There's a new spiritual life that starts, that begins at conversion, when the Holy Spirit changes us and gives us a new nature, a nature that is like God's nature. Now there is a divine element to who we are. And it's just growing and increasing throughout our lives because the Holy Spirit continues to work. As a description of this new nature, uh, we, can, we can look at Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit passage. And that's a description of what God is like and what we are like once the Holy Spirit changes us and brings us into His family. We start reflecting who God is. Galatians 5, and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Notice peace is part of that. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the traits of God's character. And now these traits are being produced out of our new nature that's been given to us by the Holy Spirit, and they keep growing and increasing and being enhanced. And now we're acting and thinking and living like that. We too become loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and kind and good and faithful and gentle and self-controlled. Now, if that's true, those are signs that God is working in your life. Those, that's fruit of the Holy Spirit who is actively nurturing this new nature you have. And as we see those, we say, okay, I resemble God in some way to a certain degree. That means I'm related to Him. There's a connection now. I'm in His family. I've been adopted. And now God is raising me. He is teaching me. He is changing me. He is disciplining me. So I could become more like His perfect Son, Jesus. I remember, I don't know if I told this story here, but I remember when Evie, Evie would take the bus to go to her school in Chicago. And uh, the first year she was taking the bus, the, the two ladies on the bus, the driver and the aide, we're just so happy. And every morning, you know, and I'm half asleep and I'm trying to just get my kid dressed and, you know, Jillian is running around. There's all other kids that need to be ready. And so, so I'm bringing Evie out and these ladies are just, they're just so happy. And they're just excited to see Evie. They're excited about their day. They're singing. And I thought, I remember coming back and just telling Jillian, I wonder if they're Christians because they're just so happy. It's joy, right? And so eventually I, I, I talked to them and I asked them if they were. And they were. They were believers. They told me what church they went to. I was able to connect with them a little bit on that level. And it makes sense that somebody who exhibits a divine trait may be part of his family. Now, it's not conclusive. I'm not saying every person who sings in the morning is God's child. We do believe in justification by faith, not by singing, right? Not by virtue. And yet, there's something to be said for noticing a person reflecting who God is. And some of it is good for introspection when you look at your life, but some of it is good at looking at others and saying, yeah, I see God's traits in this person. They're kind. They're unusually kind. They're compassionate. They're joyful. They seem to, they seem to take life's difficulties differently from other people I know. There's, there's a confidence there and a strength there that I don't see in other people. That's good to notice that and say, maybe, maybe God is working. And maybe that becomes part of your conversation with them. So before we get into what it means to 
pursue peace, to actually do these things, be peacemakers, I'd like us to ask ourselves if we share God's peaceful nature. Do you, do I, have a disposition towards peace? Because our Father is the God of peace. What kind of person are you? If you look at your life, is your life marked by the pursuit of peace? My Lloyd-Jones, pointing out the obvious, but something needs to be pointed out, says a quarrelsome person cannot be a peacemaker. A quarrelsome person cannot be a peacemaker. So when you read a passage like we just read, and you say, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, and you look at your life and you're saying, man, I have a lot of fighting in my life. I have a lot of quarrels, a lot of arguments. That is something to look at. What is the tone of your conversation? Is it confrontational? Is it cutting people down? Is it looking to show that you are superior to someone, to win an argument? I heard uh, one uh, pastor talking about it. He said, he said, my wife, when we argue, would say, okay, here we go, there's the lawyer Greg, there's the attorney at law Greg, because you can't win an argument with him, he's always going to prove his point, which coincidentally may also be true of me and uh, my conversations with Jillian. Is that what does it tell you about me, about other people like that, that we like to win arguments, that a peaceable person? Mm. It's, it's definitely food for self-reflection for me. What is the tone of my conversation? What is the tone of your conversation? Let me raise a sensitive issue here. I'm going to push you a little bit or some of you a lot on this. <clears throat> Since we are preaching through a series <clears throat> that is called Hashtag Blessed, I feel that I have free reign on commenting on social media in this series. If someone were to look through your Facebook posts, how many of you are already convicted? I don't need to say anything else. You just say, and by the way, you know that other people see what you post. You understand that, right? I know we're still getting used to social media. Not, some of us think it's just like sending emails and texts. It's not. Uh, other people can see. Other people can comment. Other people are forming opinions about you based on what you say on Facebook. And if somebody were to look through your face, Facebook feed, what kind of a person would they think that you are? Let's say they didn't know you personally. They just became your friend and they look at your feed and they see the things you're commenting on, the opinions you're expressing. Would you come across as a peacemaker? Would they say that peace is important to this person? Maybe not the only thing that's important, but peace is important to them. They seem to want to find common ground. They seem to want to resolve conflict. They seem to want to be reasonable and have a conversation with someone they disagree with without right away condemning them. What is the tone of your political posts in particular. Let me be very clear on this. Truth is important. The gospel is offensive and divisive by its very nature because it exposes our sinfulness, it exposes darkness. We are not called to be appeasers. That's not what I'm saying. We're not called to just agree with everybody and like everybody's status. That's not what I'm saying. But with that said, posting hateful 
mocking, deliberately polarizing comments is unchristian. It's unchristian. It's true. The gospel compels us to seek peace. And just because we're not personally talking to people on social media does not mean we're not communicating and we're not portraying ourselves and our God in a certain way. So let me ask you to be careful. Let me ask you to filter what you post on social media. And as you get ready to post a particularly insightful political observation that everybody is just waiting to hear, by the way. We're all dying to interact with all of you on these political issues. As you're doing that, ask yourself, am I being a peacemaker here without compromising the truth, without compromising the gospel, still being free to express your opinion? That's important. But am I being a peacemaker? is the tone of this conversation, would it allow to bring reconciliation? Or does it just further push his people apart? Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Are you missing out on the blessing of being a peacemaker? I remember when I first, this is, this is the, the foreigner's perspective part of the sermon. When I first came to the States and I went to see my friends in Colorado. And this was early on in my exploration of the American culture. And my friend, who was a solid Christian, godly man, played a huge role in my life, discipling me and really helping me grow spiritually. I noticed that he would always listen to this one particular radio show. It was a conservative radio show. It might as well have been liberal. It doesn't matter, I don't think, necessarily what the content was. What I noticed was the spirit. I noticed just how angry the host was and how easily my Christian friend agreed and followed along. Now, in that particular case, some of the opinions that were expressed coincided with the Christian view. Some of the social positions that that host took were the positions that we would affirm as believers. And yet, the tone was so angry. It was so arrogant I could not overlook that. I I couldn't really listen to it. And my friend had no problem with that. He was able to overlook that. And it's it's bothered me. It's something that he and I talked about because I just wanted to know, how does it happen that a Christian who is to pursue peace, who is to be humble, who is to seek reconciliation, would just go along with such, such fiery rhetoric that polarizes and paints others as evil. That was hard for me to understand that. Now, I am speaking from my perspective. I'm over here. I I did not grow up here. I don't know. So please take it for what it is. But maybe there is some truth to that. Maybe sometimes we, we blindly follow certain things because we agree with a part of it, but we miss the other part of it and the, and how it comes across. So the same thing with social media. Some of the things that we post are good things that need, that need to be said. Some, some of these things need to be expressed in a public forum. Not questioning any of that. And yet the tone, the attitude, the spirit with which we communicate, does it lead to peace, at least potentially? Would somebody be able to engage with you who's on the other side? They're not agreeing on your positions. Would they be able to connect with you and engage with you even if they disagree? So my big question is, 
as we look at our lives, and I am looking at my life, I'm looking at what I'm doing, what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, would I be marked by peace? Would you be marked by peace? Would we reflect, do we reflect God's peaceful nature in the way we interact with others? That's the who of peacemaking. Now the what. Not only do we reflect God's nature, but we participate in God's mission. Now what is God's mission? God's mission is to reconcile his creation to himself. Look with me, please, at 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 21. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So that's the new nature that we're talking about. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the legal transaction. That's the change in status. You have both the change in nature and the change of status in this one text. God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God is involving us graciously in what he is doing, which is restoring and renewing and healing and reconciling his creation to himself. Now, when we say peace, and especially in the New Testament, when we talk about peace and peacemaking, there's a, there's a rich background to that. And the background is the Old Testament concept of peace, often translated as peace. But you are familiar with the word shalom. It's a much richer word than peace. It means well-being and health and, and wealth in some way and harmony and, and peace and completeness. Shalom is when things are the way they are supposed to be. And so when we are called to be peacemakers, we are called to be shalom makers. We are called to be promoting this kind of complete harmony. Uh, Tim Keller talks about shalom as, as, as being a, a tapestry, a beautiful tapestry that is woven with various threads, but all the threads are in the right place. They all interact with each other in the right way and the colors merge and blend in the right way to make sure that there's a beautiful image on the front of a tapestry. Now that is shalom, that is peace. But of course the tapestry of our creation of this world is unraveling. God's creation has been affected by sin to such a degree that the picture is barely recognizable. Some threads are broken some are pulled out altogether. Some are tangled up with others. So what God is doing, the mission of God through Christ, is to reweave the tapestry, is to restore it to its original beauty. And we followers of Christ, those who have been reconciled to God ourselves, are called to participate with God in this mission. That's an amazing thing. That God would say, 
I am reconciling the world through Christ. And you are going to be my ambassadors. You are going to be shalom makers and restorers and renewers of things. You're going to be the healers. You're going to bring some of what I'm doing to other people. Now, what does it look like to pursue this kind of shalom, this kind of peace? Well, simply, it just means to seek shalom in whatever circumstance God has placed you. It's really quite simple. Wherever you are, look around. Do you see the tapestry unraveling around you? And if you see it, you come and you mend it. You try to fix it. It includes both speaking and doing. We are to proclaim the message of reconciliation as well as pursue the ministry of reconciliation. Now let me give you the spheres in which we are to cultivate peace. I'm going to go through them really quickly. But if you want to jot them down and reflect on them in your own time and just really bring these areas of life in prayer to God and ask Him to illuminate what's happening and ask Him what needs to be changed so that shalom would reign in these areas of your life. Number one, there's peace in the heart. We are to pursue inner peace through our own communion with God. We are to be at peace with God and at peace with ourselves. Peacemakers are marked by inner consistency and harmony. Now, I am speaking in spiritual terms, of course. This includes prayer. This includes knowing God's Word, submitting to His will, communion with Him through Christ, being responsive to the Holy Spirit, growing. I am talking about all these things. But I'm also talking about any sort of dysfunction that may affect your mind or your heart, mentally or emotionally or socially. The pursuit of that inner peace is appropriate for a child of God. You may use various means for that. And you may use physical means as well as spiritual things to pursue peace in your own heart. Number two, there's peace in the home. So peace in the heart and peace in the home. We are to cultivate peace in our closest relationships. Is your family life marked by peace? Is your home peaceful? Somebody comes to visit you, would they just kind of exhale and say, oh, this is, this is a good place, I can rest here. There's no drama here, there's no tension here. It's just good to be here. It feels good, restful, peaceful to be here. Are your friendships stable, secure, marked by grace and love and humility? Do you quickly seek reconciliation when conflicts arise? Are you uncomfortable that a relationship is broken? Now, I'm going to give you a qualifier in a few minutes. Some relationships are broken and we can't fix them. But in general, when something goes wrong in your friendship... Do you seek to make it right? Or do you just get upset because you have not been given enough respect and you leave the relationship? There's also peace in the church. So peace in the heart, peace in the home, peace in the church. Now this is a big one. If church... Now, please follow the, the logical progression of what I'm saying, okay? See if you agree with me on this. If church is a gathering of people related to God and thus sharing his nature of peace. 
If church is a gathering of people who have themselves firsthand experienced God's ministry of reconciliation in their lives, in their, in their families, in their relationships, in their own hearts, should we not expect our churches and Christian organizations to be especially united and peaceful? I don't think anybody could argue against this logic. If we are connected to God, we have His nature, we've experienced His work of reconciliation in our lives, and now you just gather a lot of those people together, doesn't it follow that we would be at peace with each other? Which is why, friends, it is shameful. It is shameful when Christians are not united. It is wrong to do that. When churches split over trivial matters, it brings shame to God's family. And it hurts his mission of reconciliation. There was a counseling ministry in Ukraine when we still lived there. And I, I agree with everything they taught. I thought that the seminars they put on and the counselors they trained were just great. Good gospel truths applied to particular situations in life did a lot of good. And yet, the whole ministry fell apart because the leaders of the organization could not resolve a conflict. The counselors, they teach others how to resolve conflicts. And the whole ministry shuts down because they can't get along. And you just walk away shaking your head and thinking, how can that be? How can that be? They know the gospel. I know that they know the gospel. Why is that, that we cannot get along with each other sometimes? There's also peace in the community. So peace in the heart, peace in the home, peace in the church, and then peace in our community. Where do we see the unraveling threads in our community? That is where we should be present and engaged. Right? Simple. How can you be a peacemaker? Well, you just go where there is no peace and you try to make peace. Very simple. So where do you see that around you? And the question is, are we as individuals, are we as a church running towards dysfunction with the goal of helping? Or are we running away from dysfunction with the goal of protecting ourselves? What do you think is the gospel view here? Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. We go to where there is strive. We go to where there is conflict, where there is dysfunction. We try to help. Are we always going to be successful? No. We're going to struggle. Is it going to be confusing how to deal with various situations? Absolutely. You've got a tapestry that's unraveling. It's hard to figure out which thread goes where. And yet, the Lord commands us to do that. We should seek peace, of course. We should go to where things are not well, which means we must be involved in racial reconciliation. Right? Of course. Why wouldn't we be involved in that? We should be involved in economic issues, of course. We must be involved in the local schools and educational issues. We must deal with addictions and violence and all sorts of other dysfunction because God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself and we are his ambassadors. Where we are not, there are no ambassadors of Christ. Where there is dysfunction and there is no Christians there are no peacemakers. Now here's a probing question for us. Does your presence in your neighborhood contribute 
to the shalom of the neighborhood? Does your presence in the neighborhood where you live contribute to the shalom, to the peace of the neighborhood? Are your unbelieving neighbors happy that you live among them? Where they would say, I don't agree with them. And some of the stuff they do, frankly, is weird. But I am glad they're there. Their presence is good for our neighborhood. They bring something valuable to us. And so we are happy that this family, this person, is living in our neighborhood. Another question, does what you do at work promote peace, promote shalom? How do you pick a job? How do you choose a job? You look at what it is and you say, am I bringing order out of chaos? Am I going to contribute to God's work of reconciliation? Not narrowly through evangelism only, but in general by bringing health, by bringing wellness, by bringing shalom into whatever area that you work in. And believe me, there are some jobs that don't do that. Those are not the jobs Christians should take. But there are many jobs, most jobs, are designed to bring greater order and shalom into our lives. So as a Christian, we understand that. We get it. We should be the best workers, of course. We should be the people who do that intentionally and saying, the way I'm working today is going to somehow promote God's mission of reconciliation. God is bringing shalom through my job through this cubicle, through this computer, through this truck, God is doing that. I'm contributing to His work of healing and renewing and restoring right through what I do. And of course, I don't want to neglect evangelism at all. That's a particularly important point of application. Part of how we participate in peacemaking is by proclaiming the message of peace to others. We have been given a, a life-transforming message. God says, I'm going to be reconciled to this world through Christ, by grace. That brings shalom into someone's life. And so why would we not say that? Why would we not seek opportunities to share this gospel with others? The next one is peace in the nation. So peace in the heart, in the home, in the church, in the community, and now peace in the nation. We are to promote and support policies and people and organizations and movements then contribute to the shalom of this nation. That is how you pick who you vote for. That is how you pick who you financially support. It's people and organizations that contribute to the shalom of this nation. Now, when I was critical of the kind of stuff that some of us post on social media, I didn't say, and I don't say, that we should not be involved in politics. We should. Part of the peacemaking mandate is doing it on a national level, on a state level, on a, on, a, on a level of our particular municipality. Of course, we live here. We seek the shalom of our city. We want to be involved in those things, but we should do it well. We should do it well. Finally, peace in the world. We are to contribute in whatever way that we are able to the shalom of God's world. God cares about His creation. One way we can do that is through missions. Today we prayed for Nikki. Nikki's leaving for Romania to spend a week helping at a camp for families affected with disabilities. That is part of peacemaking. That is a specific way that someone can help other people and bring shalom into their lives. There will be opportunity for evangelism, yes. There will be opportunity just to help someone 
and explain to them how you live this life with disabilities and provide support and comfort. That's a good thing. Christians are supposed to do these kind of things. We are being peacemakers when we do that. Now I want to say one more thing. That's a qualifier that's important. I'll talk a lot more about it next week when we talk about the, the last beatitude talking about being persecuted and rejected. But it is important for me to say that because we live in a sinful, broken world, because the tapestry is unraveling, our attempts at peace will be frequently met with hostility. The Bible is wonderfully realistic on this point. Romans 12 Verse 18, Romans 12, 18. Paul says, if possible, if possible. And then he says, so far as it depends on you. Two qualifiers. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. He knows he can't just say live peaceably with all. Because he knows it's not realistic. But he says, as far as it's possible, as far as you can control it, do that. That's the mandate. That's the commandment. As much as I can fix the relationships around me, I should do that. There are some relationships that will not be fixed. There are some things that will not be fixed. And that's okay. We understand why that is. That doesn't mean we should stop trying fixing what we can fix. As we pursue peace, we, we must know that there will be rejection. There will be even persecution for some of us. Just as Jesus experienced rejection, we will also experience rejection. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who himself experienced rejection and yet fought for peace in his own time, said the peacemakers will carry the cross with their Lord. For it was on the cross that peace was made. The peacemakers will carry the cross with their Lord. For it was on the cross that peace was made. When you are breaking up a fight you might get punched, right? This happens. So expect that. Expect that as you seek peace, you will experience rejection and it's going to be difficult. But the Lord commands us to seek peace nonetheless. It is worth it. Now finally, and fairly briefly, what is our motivation? What is the why in our pursuit of peace. Maybe you have agreed with me and you said peace is a good thing. These are some of the things that I can do. But we all know when we leave here and we're going to get back to reality and we're going to start making sandwiches for our children and, and you're going to say, man, this peace thing is difficult. And how do I keep going with that? How do I remain engaged? How do I find that inner motivation to do what I'm supposed to do and to reach out to others and to fix relationships and to seek peace on a national level when I'm sick of all that stuff? I mean, how do you do that? What's the motivation? What can motivate us to consistently pursue peace? Well, the answer is that the same message of reconciliation that we are called to proclaim is the message that compels us to do it. 2 Corinthians 5.21, this is the, the last verse of the passage we read. For our sake, he made him, God made Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. Jesus was sinless, perfect, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the gospel. That God, in Christ, reconciled the world to himself through his, Christ's death, through his suffering, through his resurrection, we have been 
made peace with. We have been reconciled to God. That's the message we proclaim, but that is the message we hear as well. This is the message we are constantly need to be in touch with. And as I think about what Christ has done for me, as you consider and meditate and reflect on God's work of reconciliation in your own life, that compels us to pursue peace. The Son of God, who was made sin on our behalf, who lived a perfect life for us, who suffered for us, who died for us, who rose from the dead for us, who intercedes for us even now so that our access to the Father is ensured. The Son of God who promises to return for us all the glory of what God has done for us through Christ. If that is true, if Jesus did that for me to bring me into a relationship with God, to give me the privileges of being an adopted child in God's family, to reconcile us, to repair the breach, to bring us peace. If Jesus did that, that motivates me, that compels me, that pushes me to do things I don't like to do. It pushes me to consider opportunities I wouldn't take otherwise. We've, we have peace with God through Christ, our Lord. In Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, meaning He was and is completely God. And yet through Him, the world, all things are reconciled to God because peace was made by His blood. By God's blood, peace was made. I used to be alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. And now, now, God has reconciled me in the body of Jesus by His death. And his plan is to present me holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Does that motivate you? Think about it. Meditate on that. Pray the gospel. Read the gospel. Talk to other people about it. In Christ Jesus, we who were once far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. Costly. That peace was costly. Jesus got hurt when he went into a fight to break it up. Jesus died so we could be reconciled with our God. Ravi Zacharias preached a sermon, lecture, I suppose, at an Urbana conference. And he quoted Malcolm Muggeridge. If you listen to Zacharias, he, he frequently quotes Muggeridge. Muggeridge was a, was a journalist, um, lived a long life, covered most of the 20th century as a journalist. And as Muggeridge was reflecting on his long career and recounting all the empires that came and went, all the world leaders that promised peace and prosperity only to bring oppression and suffering, all the revolution and counter-revolutions and reactions to that, Muggeridge concluded, all in one lifetime... All in one lifetime, all gone. Gone with the wind. All those things he covered are no more. Those dictators don't matter anymore. They're gone. The empires have fallen apart. Zechariah then adds from himself to Muggeridge's quote. He says, Behind the debris of these solemn supermen and self-styled 
imperial diplomatists. There stands the gigantic figure of one because of whom, by whom, in whom, and through whom alone, mankind may still have peace. The person of Jesus Christ. I present him, Zacharias says, as the way, the truth, and the life. That is who I am presenting to you as well, as the ultimate motivation for your peacemaking. This is not about social action. This is not about politics, not really. This is not about relationships, not really. This is about Jesus. The Prince of Peace, through his work of reconciliation, affecting us and moving us to do that for others. We're going to come to the Lord's table and be reminded of the gospel again. Why do we come to the Lord's table and we see the broken bread and we, we, we take the cup and we drink? Why do we do that? To remind us that Jesus really did what he said he did. That it really matters to us that the gospel is true. Something happens at the table that goes beyond remembering. Our faith is strengthened. The Holy Spirit works in our lives and, and enhances that new nature that he had given us. And pushes us to act like we belong to God. Because we do. So if you are a believer, if you have this new nature, if you have looked at your life and you said, yeah, I, I can see what God is doing in my life. I am different because of the Spirit's work. If that transaction happened, that legal transaction from being guilty before God because you have a sinful nature to being justified by faith before God because Jesus did something on your behalf and you believe it and you accept it and you say, this is my Savior. He did something for me and so God the Father accepts me because of His Son's work. If that has happened to you, you are welcome at this table. You don't have to be part of our church. You just have to be a follower of Christ to come to this table. And if you are not a believer, I pray, and when I say I pray, I do pray, and the elders pray, and before every service we pray that the gospel would penetrate someone's heart here today. And so we pray, and I plead with you as an ambassador of Christ, be reconciled with God through Christ. Come to Him in faith, embrace Him in faith, and be reconciled to Him and become a peacemaker yourself. As we take communion I encourage you to come forward. You can take it up front right here or take it back to your seats if you need more time to think, to repent, to meditate. If you are unable to come forward, we don't want you to miss out at all. We're happy to bring it to you. So please just raise your hand if you can't come forward. And we will bring communion to you. One of our elders will, will do that. If you are on the balconies, there are tables set up for you there. You don't have to come down. You can just move forward where you are. Take communion there. So let us pray and come to the table together. Father, we praise you for who you are, that in your nature you are a God of peace, which compels you to pursue peace with us. This is a great blessing to us because we cannot demand anything from you. And yet, in your mercy and grace, because of your great love for us, you decided to reconcile us to yourself through Christ. We are grateful that Jesus came and lived a perfect life and died a terrible death for us and rose again to give us a new hope and a new life, that he promised to return for us 
that he promised to to fix the tapestry of this world completely and restore complete and ultimate shalom in his kingdom. We're excited about that. We're looking forward to that. We pray that as we look forward to that, you will also motivate, motivate us to seek peace now through your message of reconciliation, through the ministry of reconciliation. Would you please convince those of us who are not sure that we need to do that? Would you explain to those of us who are not sure what it looks like for us? Would you motivate those of us who are unmotivated? Show us as your church, as a local gathering of believers, how we are to pursue peace in our community. Holy Spirit, we confess to you that often we reject your promptings. Sometimes we grieve you. We are sorry. And we pray that you would continue to change us. Continue to infuse us with your grace and make us people that are usable to you, people that reflect the Father's character and live out this Christian life faithfully. We pray for you to do your great work, Holy Spirit, right now. Save, encourage, correct, affirm. And Lord, we pray that you would feed us at this table to nourish our faith. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Let's do this together.